Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's text is an essay entitled On the Equality of the Sexes by Judith Sargent Murray. This essay actually predates Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman by a year. It was published in 1791. But we are covering it now because Wollstonecraft continued the tradition of European writers. And with Judith Sargent Murray, we've crossed the pond and we're carrying the historical thread to the United States. Judith Sargent Murray was a brilliant thinker and writer, and I think her contributions to American thought should be taught in our schools alongside Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And I think it's a crying shame that I had never even heard of her before doing this project. Um, So I'm super excited to discuss her work today. But before we start that discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Jenny Austin Priest. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Amy. Um, So Jenny, if you could tell us about this kind of really little known um, and underappreciated but incredible author. That would be awesome. Totally. So Judith Sargent Murray was, um, she was an early advocate of women's equality, access to education, and the right to control their earnings. Her essay, which we're reading today on the equality of the sexes, was published a year before Vindication of the Rights of Women, which I think you previously discussed on the podcast before this. Yep. Born on May 1st, 1751 in Gloucester, Massachusetts, Murray was the oldest of eight children in a wealthy merchant family. Sadly, only three of her siblings survived into adulthood. Judith was close friends with her brother, John Rogers, and she got to listen in on his tutoring sessions as he got ready to go to Harvard. But of course, she as a girl was not allowed to receive formal schooling. Girls at the time were barely taught to read and write, and so Judith relied on the vast family library to teach herself history, philosophy, geography, and literature. From a very young age, she wrote poetry, which her father sometimes read to family members, very proud of his daughter's talent. And Judith, I thought this was interesting, also collected letter books, which were these compilations of all her correspondences, starting from the age of 23 to friends, family, business, and political connections bound in books. And by the time she penned her last letter in 1818, she had created 20 volumes with over 2,500 letters, which is amazing. I think the telling part of this is that she believed her words and ideas mattered, particularly in a time when many women didn't see their thoughts as worthy of recording. In 1769, Murray married John Stevens, a ship captain, and they adopted his orphan nieces and her cousin. But during the American Revolution, Gloucester's shipping industry suffered. And as a ship captain, John Stevens lost his livelihood and went into debt. By the end of the war, he was facing debtor's prison. And to help out with the finances, Judith tried publishing under a pseudonym to make a little money. But it wasn't enough, and John left her and fled to the West Indies, where he died in 1786. So Judith's family had converted to the Universalist or Unitarian Church in the 1770s and given land to build America's first meeting house of that denomination in 1780. They had installed its first minister, John Murray, and Judith and John Murray had been close friends for years. So after Judith's first husband took off to the West Indies, and, and passed away, Judith and John Murray began courting and exchanging long letters on philosophy and theology. As Judith put it, I loved this, she hoped they could mingle souls upon paper. 
And one historian we listened to on YouTube said that in reading those love letters, you get the sense that Judith was just starved for intellectual engagement, like finally someone who's on my level. And John felt the same way. It was so cool. He encouraged her intellectual gifts throughout his life. They got married. And by all accounts, they were extremely happy together. As a minister, John traveled a lot, and Judith accompanied him sometimes meeting prominent people like George and Martha Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Catherine Littlefield Green. At age 38, Murray gave birth to a son who lived only a few hours, and in 1791, at age 40, she delivered her, her daughter, Julia Marie. Throughout all this time, Murray built a literary life. Women were not allowed to speak publicly, so she often wrote under a pseudonym, sometimes as Honora Martesia or Constantia. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. I think so, she, yeah. <laughs> she published her On the Equality of the Sexes under the pen name Constantia in the prestigious paper, The Massachusetts, that was like the Atlantic of their day. And it's also worth noting that that was the same year that she had a baby, which is pretty amazing. And in 1792, she assumed a male identity and a pen name, The Gleaner, for her column in the Massachusetts Magazine. And Amy, when we were talking about this, pointed out that don't you just love that her pen name was The Gleaner? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what you, you know, you have to be as a woman right. who wasn't given a formal education. Right. So the family moved to Boston the next year where Murray's play, The Medium, in 1795 was likely the first by an American author to be produced on stage. And Murray also published poetry. She was a staunch believer in improved educational opportunities for women, and her essays were vital to the post-revolutionary notion of Republican motherhood. And as you talked about last time, advocates of Republican motherhood argued that the success of the new nation required intelligent and virtuous citizens and since the education of patriotic sons, future voters, rested with mothers, women should be educated. So this was an important step forward as women were not educated at all prior to this. Murray's essays challenged prevailing notions that the female brain was inherently inferior. She argued instead that women were stifled not by physical limitations, but by lack of access to education. And Murray educated her daughter at home until she was old enough to attend an academy. So meanwhile, Murray's writing kept the family financially solvent. This woman's amazing. She <laughs> like, is amazing. It keeps going on, right? Right. Uh, in 1798, she published The Gleaners, Collected Columns. And, and I love this. To ensure a profit, Murray recruited 800 pre-sale subscribers along with endorsements from President Washington and Vice President John Adams. So not only was she adept at writing, but she was also really good at marketing and business. Yeah, and that's revolutionary too. Women did not do that back then. That was really frowned upon. She's just like such a warrior. I love her. I know. I know. I love that. And and the other thing, she was staunchly nonviolent. I thought this was interesting. She denounced the violence of the French Revolution, which was a hotly contested topic in the United States at the time. And she was also fiercely against the use of corporal punishment for children. She was a vegetarian because she opposed violence against animals and even fish, which it's so funny. She lived right on the coast of Massachusetts, so no clam chowder. Um, <laughs> 
that's that's hard for me <laughs> to wrap my hard. head around. But in 1802, Murray helped her cousin Judith Saunders and Clementine Beach open a female academy in Dorchester, south of Boston. And apparently the house that they use still stands, a little changed, but it's still there um, on a little corner there in Dorchester. John Murray, her husband, suffered a stroke in 1809. And after his death in 1815, Murray completed and published her husband's autobiography. She then moved to the frontier town of Natchez, Mississippi, to live with her married daughter, Julia Marie Bingaman, and she died there at the age of 69. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, thanks, Jenny. Yeah, the, so many great details. Um, what an incredible woman. So let's dig into this essay that she wrote. So Jenny, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so we'll start off right at the beginning. I think the fun and really poignant part of this is that she starts her essay with a poem, which mm. is super close to our hearts. Mm -hmm. Here's how she starts. That minds are not alike, full well I know. This truth each day's experience will show. To heights surprising some great spirit's store, with inborn strength mysterious depths explore. But some there are who wish to not improve, who never can the path of knowledge love. Stupidly dull, they move progressing on. They eat and drink, and all their work is done. Yeah. So pointing, a, pointing out that people are different, and some, some are more intelligent and vivacious, and some are less so, right? And, mm -hmm. and some are ambitious, some are not. And she's just laying the foundation that she's not arguing that everybody's the same. Yeah, and it's about equal opportunity to explore the diversity of our potential, right? That, mm -hmm. that she's going to get into. And also that, yeah, some people are going to excel and others don't, both female and male, and which is an essential part of it, that we grow with the right opportunity. Mm. So continuing, she says, yet cannot I their sentiments imbibe who this distinction to the sex ascribe as if a woman's form must needs enroll a weak, a servile, an inferior soul, and that the guise of man must still proclaim greatness of mind in him to be the same. But imbecility is still confined, and by the lordly sex to us consigned. Oh, she's so, so good. powerful. I know. I love it. Um, one of the things I love about that stanza is when she says, I cannot imbibe their sentiments. <laughs> like, imbibe to drink right so literally like i am not drinking that kool-aid <laughs> um i love it um and the other thing that stands out to me from that part is that she's addressing the injustice like the the foundational injustice that men which she calls the lordly sex from his position of power thinks that he has the right to declare what's what in the world. And he's the one who has proclaimed that men have, quote, greatness of mind and women have, quote, a weak, a servile and an inferior soul. And so we know from previous episodes that that um, that was a paradigm that people inherited from the ancient world. It had been in society for time in memoriam and it it was still very much alive and well. And so to me, what I hear is that she's saying it's true that some people are less capable and some people are more capable in certain arenas, but those traits are not linked to a person's sex. And it's not a man's right to declare that a man is superior and a woman is inferior. So that's what I got out of that. Absolutely. And I, I just think it's hilarious that she's using these words such as imbibe and ascribe and imbecility and servile to express her point 
towards these men who are all saying women are dull and yeah. intellectually <laughs> inferior. Totally. Like, it's like, come on guys, really? Like you think a dull person could write this? Anyway. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, so she finishes with this punch. So she says, they rob us of the power to improve and then declare we only trifles love, yet haste the era when the world shall know that such distinctions only dwell below. Yeah, I love that. It just must be like inane gossip. If you ever see two women talking together, it, they just must be talking about trifling things, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. And finally, Murray says that those distinctions only dwell below, as in like, you'll see those distinctions did not come from God. And I love that she ends with that. And she's saying, bring it fast. Haste the era, ladies. <laughs> like God has <laughs> so much more for all his souls. I just, yes. yeah, I love the ending. So that's the poem. And then Amy and I wanted to highlight, Murray has four major themes or four major sections in her essay. And we're going to try and discuss a little bit from each of these, but we wanted to lay them out really quick so you kind of have that framework. First of all, she discusses nature and nurture that women can achieve if given the education because it's in her nature, which she hinted at in the poem. Two, don't worry. This is her balanced argument. Uh, women can be educated and do domestic work as well, and all will benefit, and we'll get into that conversation. Three, strengthen sex. The size or strength of a man does not represent his superiority over women. And finally, the fourth is Eve's choice for knowledge, showing that the argument that Eve is the weak one is in the fall is problematic. So that is what she is doing. So let's get started with her opening argument, talking about the nature of women's intellectual abilities. And I'll just read this quote. She says, may not the intellectual powers be ranged under these four heads, imagination, reason, memory, and judgment. The province of imagination hath long since been surrendered up to us, and we have been crowned undoubted sovereigns of the regions of fancy. Invention is perhaps the most arduous effort of the mind. This branch of imagination hath been particularly seated to us, and we have been invested with that creative faculty. Observe the variety of fashions, here I bar the contemptuous smile, which distinguish and adorn the female world. How continually are they changing insomuch that they almost render the whole man's assertion problematic, and we are ready to say, there is something new under the sun. <laughs> I love that. I, I know. First of all, I think it's I think it's so relatable when she says, here I bar the contemptuous smile. Like <laughs> she knows that if she talks about fashion, that men are not going to take her seriously. And she's like, uh, yeah, do not roll your eyes at me. Like, listen to what I'm saying. Bringing up fashion. I love Murray's contribution to the conversation here because um, she says, have like, have you seen the imagination and inventiveness and genius that women display in creating fashion, right? So she's almost saying like, you know, we've been so limited in the number of channels that our genius can be channeled into. And so, I mean, given those restrictions, look at the incredible imagination that we've displayed. And she she defends fashion as an art form. And I really love that I don't know. I love that Judas Sargent Murray kind of rescues clothing and fashion from being denigrated by the men who look down at it. That's so, so powerful. And and I totally relate to that. And I think it is something that we've been trying to balance, right? And try and figure out. And I love 
that she, yeah, that she turned it on their head. She said, oh, this is what you're saying we have and kind of criticizing us, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but look at how amazing it is. And, and look at that imagination. In fact, we, we've been given the crown of that imagination, which I thought was interesting that, that, you know, she, she says, men, you acknowledge that. But then she also talks about not only this frivolous clothing, but she talks about women's abilities to talk and to gab and tell stories, right? Mm-hmm. As, as additional proof of that argument that women are creative and imaginative and, and that it's part of their creative faculty. So she's saying own it, which I think is really, <laughs> really cool and really powerful. But she also says, and this is one of her quotes, is the needle and the kitchen sufficient to employ the operations of a soul thus organized? So is what we've been given to do as domestic women enough for us with such an amazing intellectual soul? And she says, heavens no. Like there's so Mm -hmm. much more. Like look at what we've created already and how amazing it is. And, And there's so much more that we can do. So she then moves on and um, looks at the three other areas of intelligence. She looks at reason, memory, and judgment and concludes that, you know, any of these um, deficiencies are merely because women weren't given the chance to learn and equally progress with men. Right. And she says this um, specific quote, she says, quote, are we deficient in reason? We can only reason from what we know. And if opportunity of acquiring knowledge hath been denied us, the inferior the inferiority of our sex cannot fairly be deduced from thence. So she makes the same argument regarding judgment, saying that if men do have superior abilities in reason and in judgment, she says the reason is, quote, may we not trace its source in the difference of education and continued advantages. Will it be said that the judgment of a male of two years old is more sage than that of a female's of the same age? I believe the reverse is generally observed to be true. But from that period, what partiality? How is the one exalted and the other depressed by the contrary modes of education which are adopted? The one is taught to aspire, and the other is early confined and limited— As their years increase, the sister must be wholly domesticated, while the brother is led by the hand through all the flowery paths of science, end quote. Oh, that, this quote, personally, like you can feel the pain in -hmm. her words Mm -hmm. when she says, oh, what partiality. I mean, knowing her history and how her younger brother, you know, was the one who was formally educated and she got to tag along and hear some of his tutoring. But she even uses the title, you know, of brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So this really, this idea too, like the words that she used of the idea of leading by the hand through all the flowery paths of science, it's such an intimate portrayal of that care and that nurturing and that guidance that was completely off limits to women formally. And she had to, you know, she had to lead her own hand. She had to educate herself. And Mm -hmm. and here she's pointing out, no wonder men appear superior, right? Like your customs, you have made it so, even though we started, you know, off at the same, the same point. And, you know, this, this is a hard one because this is what we see today. You know, it's, 
it's in education. It's in many of our church or community programs. It's in some families where you see the boy is led by the hand. He's led by the hand to pursue all sorts of interests and aspirations. And the women are confined to either figure it out on their own or given only one option. So then Marie says, was she permitted the same instructors as her brother with an eye, however, to their particular departments for the employment of a rational mind, an ample field would be open. So had she been able to have access to that, just think of what the possibilities and that confidence that she could have had. So Marie goes on, it's like she talks about how the fields of astronomy and geography and natural philosophy and even the reptile world, I loved that, <laughs> would help a woman understand her place in the world and her place with God. I, this was a very religious woman, right? Her her second husband was a minister. She she totally mm. believed in that relationship with God and that that women could be more productive. They could be more thoughtful. They could be more earnest and and happy and a happier wife being closer to God. Right. Exactly. Her next point is she says that once a girl has, quote, arrived at womanhood, the uncultivated fair one feels a void, which the employments allotted her are by no means capable of fulfilling. What can she do? To books she may not apply, or if she doth, to those only of the novel kind, lest she merit the appellation of a learned lady. Meantime, she herself is most unhappy. She feels the want of a cultivated mind. So, first of all, how heartbreaking that society at the time thought of the term learned lady as an insult, right? Mm -hmm. So she's saying that young women might think like, I'd love to read a like a philosophy book or an astronomy textbook, but uh, I guess I better just read this trashy novel so I don't get called a nerd, right? Like it's, I, I kind of laughed, but I was also heartbroken because it's like the early example I ever read of girls playing dumb just to, to avoid stigma, right? there was this expectation that a woman should be doing these domestic chores or like these domestic things, like that's your job as a woman. And so you a little bit got ostracized because you weren't keeping the traditional model. And, and Marie does talk about those domestic chores that we think of as only being a mother's job, right? Yeah. And she tries to calm the fears of these men, right? Who want their warm dinners and their clean house. Yeah. And yeah. she says here that um, these domestic skills are, quote, easily attained. And with truth, I can add that when once attained, they require no further mental attention. Nay, while we are pursuing the needle or the superintendency of the family, I repeat that our minds are at full liberty for reflection, that imagination may exert itself in full vigor, and that if a just foundation is, laid, is early laid, our ideas will then be worthy of rational beings. So basically, She's saying, we got this, men. It's not brain surgery. Like we can keep house and do what needs to be done while strengthening our minds and intellect. Mm. But I do have concerns about her saying like, don't worry, men, we'll still do all the housework, right? <laughs> so what do you think about that? Oh, it's totally true. Like, and obviously context is huge, right? As you were saying, she lived in the 18th century. She's needing to be realistic about how far to push. And and maybe she's not quite ready to push that far herself. And even though she does hint <laughs> to wanting more and kind of, you know, throws these little nuggets out there. So 
This part is really interesting, actually, where she starts pulling in her religious beliefs to support her arguments that women are meant for more than household jobs. So she says that if you want to say, quote, domestic employments are sufficient, then you must not believe in God or the purpose of existence. I would calmly ask, is it reasonable that a candidate for immortality, for the joys of heaven and intelligent being who is to spend eternity in contemplating the works of deity should at present be so degraded as to be allowed no other ideas than those which are suggested by the mechanism of a pudding or the sewing the seams of a garment? Pity that all such censures of female improvement do not go one step further and deny their future existence. To be consistent, they surely ought. Ouch. Wow. <laughs> I know. I love that. Yeah. So she's saying here, if you want to say that our duties with home and children should be all we need, then basically just deny that there is a God or <laughs> eternal life for women, right? Because <laughs> then you'd just be consistent with those degradations. And it's quite the argument and especially in a society, you know, that's so religiously based and founded on God and uses God often to justify, right. Which we'll see later on too. Um, the subjugation of women is pretty stinging and, and I love it. And I love that she throws pudding and sewing into the face of these, you know, God believing men and two more things to note. Um, one thing she, she talks about in this part is just really, quite funny, actually. <laughs> she, <laughs> she talks about the size and the strength of man and how they shouldn't be reasoned to say they are superior. And her best comment, it's totally tongue in cheek, is here. She says, quote, but if this reasoning is just, man must contend to yield the palm to many of the brute creation, since by not a few of his brethren in the field, he is far surpassed in bodily strength. So... <laughs> If that were so, then basically cows would be mentally superior to men. And again, she's saying your logic is ridiculous, that the souls must be equal. So give us a chance, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that part. It's hilarious where you say that, yeah, if that's, if that's true, then cows are smarter than men. And she also says kind of playfully that maybe nature quote, had invested the female mind with superior strength as an equivalent for the body <laughs> bodily powers of man. Um, so like she's saying, maybe intelligence is inversely proportional to size and actually women are smarter. So, um, but she says, quote, but waiving this however palpable advantage for equality only, we wish to contend. Like, <laughs> we're smarter than you, but don't worry. We're not going to try to subjugate you. We'll just try to make it equal. She's so funny. I know. Actually, just like she, so wry in her her humor yeah and she waves it. those little nuggets out there but then comes back and like yeah, okay yeah. this is the 1790s and right. you know we can't go too far right um, so let's move to the final part of marie's essay which is based off of a letter she wrote 10 years earlier to an unnamed man i believe he was unnamed Apparently, this guy loved his Bible, or the sacred <laughs> oracles, as she calls them in the essay. And furthermore, he he's used the examples from the sacred oracles to justify the superiority of man to her. So again, Murray's taking this argument and turns it upside down using the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, and the transgression of eating the forbidden fruit. So Instead of making Eve the sinner and the evil one, she makes Eve quite innocent 
with genuine motives, where Adam was the weak and servile inferior soul, which is so interesting because she's kind of hearkening mm-hmm. back to that opening poem's false description of women, right? And now mm-hmm. she's she's saying that's really what Adam portrays in this. Right. Right. So the quote, I think, is she says, quote, let us examine her motive. Hark, the seraph declares that she shall attain a perfection of knowledge. It doth not appear that she was governed by any one sensual appetite, but merely by a desire of adorning her mind. A laudable ambition fired her soul, and a thirst for knowledge impelled the predilection so fatal in its consequences. That's the end of the quote. Yeah, it's she. It's so interesting how she is using Eve as seeking something good, right? And however, Adam knew full well what he was doing and chose to be with his girl. That's all. Like, yeah, <laughs> he didn't have any position, positive or moral motives. He just yeah. wanted to be with his with his girl. And then she adds, and this is so great. It's just fun to read. Bless ye vaunters of fortitude, ye boasters of resolution. Ye haughty Lord of creation, blush when you remember that he was influenced by no other motive than a bare pusillanimous attachment to a woman. <laughs> so he was hooked to Eve and yeah, he was that yeah. weak and soft and he couldn't bear being without her. Marie's in- interpretation doesn't follow the blame Eve track, but yet she doesn't hail her as a hero either. So she she's basically saying that Eve was genuinely deceived by a righteous temptation you know, to seek that mm. knowledge. But as a universalist, she still holds, you know, traditionally that the fall ideology, that it was a bad thing, but Eve is definitely not the inferior one in this deal. That's how yeah. I read it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Murray kind of takes her place in this long tradition of really careful, brilliant readings of the Bible that, that, that have to, to ask these questions because a traditional literal reading of that story just is is hard emotionally. It's really hard for a woman to mm-hmm. take the place of Eve in that story. So anyway, um, that concludes our discussion today, Jenny. And that was just awesome. So thank you so, so much for being here. This was just such a, an invigorating conversation. And I learned so much from you and from the text. You're just the best. And I adore you. Thank you so much for being here. 